This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Beshta, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society at Oregon State University. Dr. Beshta has a BS degree in forest management from Colorado State University, an MS degree in forest hydrology from Utah State University, and a PhD in watershed management from the University of Arizona. Dr. Pestra was a professor of the College of Forestry at Oregon State in Corvallis. During that time, he was motivated in teaching research and extension programs related to the effects of land use practices upon plant communities and water processes. Since becoming emeritus professor, Dr. Pestra has conducted research on studies primarily related to terrestrial trophic cascades in riparian and upland systems. This effort included studies in several national parks in the U.S. and Canada, as well as the Apache National Forest in Arizona. However, most of his research efforts since the early 2000s has focused on trophic effects of Yellowstone's wolves on plant communities in the park's northern range. So welcome, Dr. Beshta. It's great to be talking with you. And uh, thank you much for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Okay, great. So uh, let's just start off and talk about trophic levels. What are they? We need a definition. Well, a trophic level in in an ecosystem is really uh, groups of organisms that kind of like function the same way. For example, plants would be considered a trophic level where they utilize energy from the sun, water from the soil, and nutrients, Ah. and they and they produce um, biomass, uh-huh. plant biomass. So they are a group of producers. Uh, there's another group above them, perhaps, which we would consider to be consumers of these plants. And these are typically on wildland watersheds would be our ungulate populations, such as elk and deer. And another group on top of them in the food chain would be the predators, the the large carnivores, the wolves, bears, and cougar uh, is that, in the American West. Is that what a cascade is? Well, the, the, trophy, the cascade or the trophic cascade is when we look at these these trophic levels and we find that one of them affects another. And, for example, the presence of large carnivores will affect perhaps how elk and deer behave and also their numbers, which then has consequences to plant communities, allowing many different plants uh, to establish, grow, and, and reproduce. So this trophy cascade is kind of like a trickle-down effect from the top to the bottom. Right. So in the, in the mid-20s, wolves were largely exterminated from Yellowstone. Uh, how did that affect woody plant communities? Well, it's been really intriguing. The timeline with regard to when wolves disappeared and then what happened to plants. As soon as wolves are gone, as you indicated, the mid-1920s roughly, not a precise date, but somewhere in there. Right. And it was really soon after the Park Service biologists began to notice that browsing was beginning to increase. And this 
housing, uh, primarily by elk, continued to occur for many decades, even though at some point the park got to the point of culling or removing elk, trying to reduce their effects. And uh, so they continued. And then finally in 1968, the Park Service stopped culling of elk and the numbers increased dramatically and the effects on vegetation became just incredibly pronounced. Mm -hmm. Um, Willows and cottonwoods, aspen, the, the short, the young plants just were no longer able to grow above probably the height of your knees, less less than half a meter tall, and they could never then grow into a sapling or a tall tree anymore. So when wolves were reintroduced in 1995-96, uh, what was the status of those plant communities? Well, by 95 and 96, they were, as I just indicated, they were really in tough shape. Um, they were all short. Elk were coming back, came into the northern range in the winter. This is their, this is where their wintering uh, location, and and they were heavily browsing these plants. Uh, they had a high population of elk, and and they were just stymied. And so we were just, we just saw when we looked at the tree record, just nothing was able to grow taller. And if continued, um, tree species would would be disappearing in the northern range. So what motivated you to begin study of the effects of wolves on plants uh, during, uh, during 2001 Yellowstone? Yeah, 2001 is the first year I did research inside the park, but I'd been there in 96. And it was in 1996... Um, on a field trip with some others that we went into the, we had, we were wandering across in essence parts of the Northern range, looking at Aspen, what was happening there. But when we came into the Lamar Valley, um, it was, this is, this is an area that was just heavily, heavily browsed by elk. Mm-hmm. And I could see that there were these iconic cottonwoods growing up and down the Valley. Um, but these were trees that were uh, like a foot in diameter and larger. And there were just a total absence of smaller trees. And so my original study in the park there was not to address wolves. It was just to address what's the status of cottonwood and, you know, how well are they doing. And it wasn't really until I I, I basically aged all the cottonwoods, over 700 of them. I was able to estimate the ages of all these trees in the Lamar. And some of them go back to 200-plus years. They go back to the time of Lewis and Clark. And, and everything was – the system was working just fine back then. But when I – Put together the data set in Corvallis uh, several months later, this was like, this was a major aha moment for me because I saw a downturn in cottonwood recruitment. That is the ability of, of a cottonwood to establish and grow above the browse level of elk. Uh, I saw this downturn in recruitment just became very pronounced after wolves had disappeared in Yellowstone just like had been previously shown for Aspen by a, by a colleague of mine, Bill Ripple. And so I didn't, I didn't go there to study wolves, but the data set said, holy smokes, wolves in Yellowstone are important. And then as I thought about it, you know, perhaps they're really important also across the rest of the West. So that is what really pushed me into now looking at this trophy cascade story in more detail. So have have Aspen come back as well in northern Yellowstone? Aspen in the northern range are coming back in quite a few places in in the north in, in northern Yellowstone. 
we are seeing recovery. We're seeing plants now growing well above the browse level of elk. I think our latest data sets show like more than 60% of the stands that we sampled now have now have young aspen growing above a, a two meter height, which is about roughly the upper browse level of elk. So I think we we are seeing uh, success occurring there because overstory trees are dying out and they need to be replaced. But it's of course not happening everywhere yet. Mm-hmm. Have plant communities generally uh, come back? We're seeing as we look. We've 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 studied uh, aspen. We've looked at cottonwoods, we've looked at willows, we've looked at berry-producing shrubs, we've looked at alder, and others have looked at willows and other plants, too. The vast majority of studies in the northern range, I think it's like 22 out of 24, have all shown some improvement in plant height, diameter growth, increased regeneration, and, and so on. So most of the studies in Yellowstone are showing positive changes for plant communities, uh, since since the return of wolves, and so we're really incur- it's really been interesting and encouraging. And as, as a sidelight here, you know, when the Park Service early on brought wolves into the park, the the major question was how many elk are they going to eat? And the concept of trophy cascade, or that 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 a, that a large predator such as wolves in a in a complete carnivore gill might be influencing this very lowest, most trophic level, was really not part of the conversation. Uh, it really wasn't expected um, or really talked about a great deal. And so it's been one of these uh, really interesting and positive surprises that, is, that has happened uh, with the recovery and with the reintroduction of wolves. So the food web is uh, the way it's, uh, you'd like it to see it? It's improving. We're seeing, for example, if you think about an increase in wood in, in berry producing shrubs, these shrubs produce berries that are used by a wide, wide range of wildlife species, from bears to birds to, to other small mammals, what have you. So this is, we are seeing increased berry production uh, on plants that have been absent or haven't had have a tough time prior to the return of wolves. So that's a real positive effect. Uh, food webs along streams, for example, and riparians are particularly improving where we see willows, and in some cases aspen and young cottonwoods coming in. We've seen small channels being shaded again. Mm. That would have implications for fish and amphibians. So in, in a lot of ways, from an ecological perspective, we would say, yeah, food webs are improving. Mm-hmm. They're not where they once were, but they're they're moving in that direction. And uh, streams have been affected by the flooding back in June. But are streams in good shape these days? Well, I think I think the smallest the tributary streams that we've been working on, where plant communities have recovered or are recovering, I think will be in fine shape. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying that, though, because, although I haven't been there since the floods, but I'm just projecting or predicting perhaps they will be based on my understanding of how streams and vegetation and high flows work. I think they'll be fine. Unfortunately, and I've been really, would have been really interested in getting back into the park this fall, but unfortunately the northern range had been shut down right. for access up until just this last week or two. And because I've been in personally involved in doing a house move, I just have not been able to get over there. Yeah. So 
I will like I will like to get over there next year and look at it. And and I've seen videos in the Lamar Valley has obviously experienced some very catastrophic catastrophic effects on the Lamar River. Well, I just saw this morning that they're and that they've announced the opening of the road between uh, Gardner and Madison, uh, and there or Mammoth, and they are having a uh, an opening ceremony in the next few days. So cool. You'll be able to get in from the northern entrance. So, uh, how have uh, how have populations of uh, elk particularly been affected, and are wolves doing okay? Well, elk peaked. The numbers of elk peaked in the late eighties and nineteen nineties. They were they approached somewhere around twenty thousand elk, probably the highest density of elk anywhere in the world. Um, and so, they were just exceptionally, exceptionally high. And at the same time, wolves were reintroduced, um, so we had a very degraded winter range. We entered a period of some severe winters, and elk numbers came rapidly down just after wolves were reintroduced. And it really couldn't have been due to the wolves because the changes were so big and so quick. So quick. Um, but anyways, the wolf population after the reintroduction of some 30-plus wolves uh, increased and went to somewhere around 100 wolves by 2004, and then have since slowly declined, and they're in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 wolves. And whereas the elk population was in 20,000, or a little bit, right around there, a little bit less maybe when wolves were introduced, and they are now down to around four to 5,000. So there's been a reduction, a very significant reduction of the number of elk that use the winter range, and there's now been this, after peaking, wolves have decreased, and, and both now seem to be relatively stable at around four to 5,000 elk and somewhere around 40 to 50 wolves, basically the, uh, on a ratio of like 10 elk for every wolf. So it's been, it's been bumping around that for the last five, 10 years. Has the bison population also stabilized? Bison have, is an interesting component of what's going on inside the park. Uh, around 2,000 or so bison numbers were basically around 400 Four to five hundred bison. Um, since that time, they have increased appreciably to about four thousand. So we've seen about a tenfold increase in bison in the northern range, and so they are having major effects on plant communities. So in essence, they have replaced elk in in the Lamar Valley, where elk used to be having this incredible impact on willows and cottonwoods and other woody species, let's say, in the Lamar Valley, bison now are doing the same thing and perhaps even more severe because these are bigger animals and they're there all year round. They can trample stream banks, uh, whereas that was not a major problem with elk, but, but bison certainly are capable of. So, so bison have really limited the recovery of plant communities mm. that we're seeing in many portions of the northern range since wolves are back. Mm. So uh, most of your research has been done in national parks. Uh, why do you concentrate there? Well, national parks have a real advantage from a research standpoint, and, we, and so we considered this as we looked around and wanted to do additional research. National parks are large. They often have not had significant land use effects. That is, they don't have a lot of roads. They haven't had grazing. They haven't had, let's say, timber harvesting taking place. 
They occur in different ecosystems. So if you want to do research and look at effects other places, they give us that kind of component. And another really important part was that almost all parks that we've looked at, they have early biologists that recorded what was going on. And so one of the very first things we ever do when we walk into a national park is we basically go to their library and look for the oldest reports we can find by biologists because they contain observations and they contain incredible photographs often that allow us to look back in time and find out what was once there and trying to understand what was once there and then trying to understand how we got to the present. Before you uh, did your research in Yellowstone, you were doing research in Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota. What did you find there? Yeah, actually, Wind Caves, all, all the parks uh, came after. We started in Yellowstone, and because we were seeing this really interesting story about when an apex predator has been removed, like wolves, mm-hmm. we saw the ungulates basically taking over and, and creating really important or major impacts to plant communities. We purposely began to look around at other national parks, and one of them we looked at was Wind Caves. And Wind Caves is on the edge of the Great Plains. It's in the Black Hills area. And it was an area that most of the large, almost all the large carnivores were were removed by the late 1880s. So this, uh, this occurred fairly early on. And what we found there is that after the large carnivores were all were gone, and in this case, livestock were introduced, so we had a little bit of a confounding effect here. But essentially, the recruitment, again, this growth of a woody plant above the browse level of a, of a herbivore or an ungulate for, for plants like plains cottonwood and bur oak and lance leaf cottonwoods, it basically, these plants were shut down. They could no longer grow into saplings and trees. So it was a one of our first indications that what we were seeing in Yellowstone may have not just been a unique Yellowstone story, but maybe occurring elsewhere. Mm-hmm. What did you find in Jasper Park up in BC? Jasper was interesting um, it, in the sense that wolves were removed from that park at some time in the early, let's say around the early 1950s because of they had rabies concerns, and so elk, or wolves in this case, were removed, and elk populations uh, increased, and when that happened, of course, uh, a very similar story to Yellowstone, the aspen uh, were being heavily browsed now, and they could no, not grow any taller. So we had this little replicate of a story with regard to removal of wolves, elk takeover, aspen can no longer grow. The other interesting thing about jasper was wolves came back naturally. They came from other parts of British Columbia or Alberta, and and they came back into the park again. And it was after they returned that we began, our data showed that aspen began to again grow above the browse level of elk. So it was a replicate, in essence, of what we were seeing in Yellowstone. So it's really important if you come across an interesting field story or field research story that you can replicate it. And here we were, in essence, replicating the Yellowstone story, but in another national park much farther to the north, in another northern Rocky Mountain ecosystem.
Have uh, other predators like uh, a mountain lion or coyotes or wolverine, have they been affected by the introduction of wolves? I can only give you a kind of a general opinion. I'm not a wildlife biologist, and so, you know, on the specifics, one would have to talk to a wolf biologist or an ungulate biologist, particularly, um, let's say, a wolf or a predator, large predator biologist. But we think that the presence of wolves has actually supported, let's say, the grizzly bear, grizzly bear population as an example in Yellowstone National Park. And, and how might that work? When wolves bring down an elk, they cannot consume it all at one time, and perhaps even over a period of several days cannot consume the entire entire animal. And oftentimes, then, there is this residual carrion available for other large predators or other scavengers, and, and in this case, grizzly bears benefit, and particularly in the fall when they're getting ready for hibernation, trying to put it trying to increase fat reserves, the downing of an elk that is not fully consumed, I think is probably much appreciated by grizzly bears because they glom onto them fairly quickly. So from the standpoint of bears, there's this this positive effect. With regard to mountain lions or cougar, um, it's possible that wolves, because they push elk into areas where they can hide from wolves, might push these elk into habitats that cougar reside in. So there could be a spin-off there too, but that's perhaps just conjecture on my part. So when you were down in Arizona studying uh, in the Apache Natural Forest, what did you find down there? Well, we decided to step out of the side of a national park, and we very quickly learned that it's more complicated outside national parks. We we were trying to look at whether there's a trophy cascade occurring in Arizona, that is, whether plant communities were improving, in this case, with the return of the Mexican gray wolf, whereas everything else we looked at was gray wolves, mm-hmm. uh, North American gray wolf. Down here we had the Mexican gray, which is a smaller animal, in which over long periods of time has, has lived on a, used, used to use, uh, I think it's a coos white-tailed deer was the primary prey species, and this is a very, very small deer and um but but now we have Mexican gray wolves in Arizona, and they are and they are trying to take down elk, which is a considerably larger animal. When we initially scouted down there a, a year before we did our study, we thought it looked like something positive was happening, particularly in riparian areas but we when we went back down again, we found out that the improvement in riparian areas was may have been because livestock had the use of these riparian areas had been reduced, and so the increase in willows we could not attribute to the presence of wolves. When we looked at upland aspen stands, uh, we basically found that aspen are still having trouble, even with the presence of of the Mexican gray wolf. So it was an example of a system that is not showing recovery yet, But but we think it might be a mismatch of the predator, in this case, the Mexican gray wolf, with this much larger uh, Rocky Mountain elk, that it, that ecologically or from a in, uh, from a from a long term perspective, they they probably did not prey on that animal. That's not their, that was not their primary prey. So, anyways, it was a more complicated story, but we did not get a positive trophy cascade output. What did you find in Yosemite and Zion National Parks? <clears throat> 
those were interests from the standpoint we were shifting predators uh, in these two cases. Both are like considerably, let's say, a canyon country, Yosemite Valley, Zion National Park, um, and we're looking at the main the main canyon there in Zion along the Virgin River. Uh, in this case, the primary large predator happened to be cougar, and what we found there. Cougar generally have been displaced out of these canyons by a large number of tourists. Uh, as, as the number of tourists began to increase, sometimes in the 30s or 40s or 50s, cougar began to be displaced out of these canyons. And when their numbers dropped down, deer populations rose, mule deer predominantly, and we began to see very significant browsing effects, just like elk in Yellowstone. Now it's, now it's mule deer in the Yosemite and Zion, in both cases, um, they were having a very adverse effect on plant communities, and then of course on habitats for for a whole host of other species, um, whether it's lizards or amphibians or birds or butterflies. We measured some of these, we, well, at least we indexed them, and we found major downturns in these other species when mule deer um, were decimating these, these woody plant communities. So, uh, so you found uh, consequences for birds and small mammals, beaver, and so on in your studies? Yeah, some we have studied specifically and others we can either infer from our work of others or just on general principles. But, but in Yellowstone, um, the recovery of plants we think has been a crucial component of why beaver are now recovering uh, in Yellowstone. The numbers, the number of colonies in the Northern Range are not very great yet. Uh, not like the hundreds or perhaps thousands that once existed in the Northern Range. Um, but they're moving in, they are, they're going from like zero in the, in the early 2000s to like 20 colonies today. But they're on an upwing. We think that is very positive. And we think the, one of the reasons that can occur is because Wolves now have allowed riparian areas along many streams to begin to recover. There's now a food source for beaver, and they can then dam these streams up. And when you get beaver in a system, then there's this huge biodiversity bump up. That is, they create habitat for a whole host of other wildlife species. We, we think they are just a crucial, crucial component that's been missing in the northern range for, for many, many decades and are now finally working their way back. So scavengers are doing better because there's carrying for them. Beaver, we think, are doing better. Uh, birds, in general, now have habitat that they didn't have before. So, yes, we think, we think there's huge positive things happening in places like Yellowstone. Do you think any of your findings are affected by climate change? <clears throat> Interesting question, Jay. Um, one of the competing hypotheses in every park in, in that we've looked at has always been climate change. There have been others like uh, changes in land use of, of in some cases, but in every case we've always looked at climate change because you know the public's aware of this, the scientific community's aware of this. Uh, we've been remiss if we've not looked at climate change as maybe an explanation as to why aspens aren't growing as tall or why our cottonwoods is growing as tall because you know things are getting warmer, drier, whatever. So we, we've always looked at that in, in the six national parks we've looked at, and we've come to the same conclusion in all cases. Climate change is not a significant factor in the results that we are seeing. Uh, the changes in climate so far have been subtle. 
Uh, I'm not saying that's the case in the future, but so far they've been relatively subtle, and they really cannot account for these very rapid and dramatic changes in plant communities that we've we've been looking at. It, It really is due to when you release large ungulates such as elk and deer from predators, from predation, they basically take over and they begin to, uh, in a way, decimate woody plant communities. Well, we have exhausted our time, but uh, thank you very much. This has been fascinating, so I very much appreciate your willingness to talk to us. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Pechter, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society at Oregon State University. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. Hear more of these half-hour interviews. Go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.